y'all. Welcome to Footnotes and Witness. My name is Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find him in our own story. Let us be faithful witnesses to his character and glory. So last week, we started our discussion on how to read discourse, this type of biblical literature where one person is telling another person or a group of people something that they need to know. So we have discourse all over the Bible, from the law to the epistles to even Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. But we can get into a lot of trouble when we read discourse, because generally we read it for our own purposes. And so today we're going to talk about some of those pitfalls, some of those places where we kind of go off the path and forget that it's actually all about Jesus. It's actually all about God and his character. It's not a book for us. It's not a book to us or about us. It's about him. And that there is some change in heart and behavior that can come after learning more about God. But it's a byproduct of that time, not the intention. So what we went over last week, three things that I wanted you to keep in mind when reading discourse. And that's number one, keeping situational and historical context in mind. Why was this particular discourse written? What was the point? And number two, How does the discourse you're reading fit into the overall Bible narrative? There's one unified story about God. And how does that particular place that you're reading in scripture fit into that overall story or the meta narrative? And number three, how does this point to the gospel? If the whole Bible is about Jesus, then we should be able to find him in every passage. So those are three really good things to keep in mind when you're reading discourse. So let's take what we've kind of already learned and put it to some practical use. One phrase that has been really helpful to me, I actually grabbed from a lady named Tara Lee Cobble, and she runs an app called the Bible Recap, and it's super helpful. It's totally free. I'm not supported by them or anything, but it's an app where she reads the Bible to you chronologically and then has like a 10-minute discussion about what you read. And she has this little phrase that's really helpful, especially when we're talking about discourse. So the phrase is this, the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive. Now, that doesn't count for everything, and I'm using it in a very general way. But when we're talking about discourse specifically, it's really helpful. So what does that mean? When something is descriptive, it's telling you what's happening. It's describing what the events are that's happening. Prescriptive is trying to tell you what should happen. So the word that's going to probably come to mind is a prescription. So a doctor writes a prescription to a certain person for a certain thing. So when we take the Bible in this like whole narrative is about me view, that it is a prescription written to me about what I should do with my behavior, then we miss out. We miss out on the context, the historical context, the literary context, and we also forget who it's actually about, which is God. So we have lots of things in the Bible that are being described to us, but not necessarily prescribed to us. Let's look at some examples and see this play out in real life. Leviticus 25 verse 6. The verse reads like this, 
The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired workers and the sojourner who lives with you. So this is a part of scripture that's talking about how they need to give the land a rest every seven years. And that's the Sabbath year. And so the years before year seven, you actually reap more than you need and keep it in storage. So that way you can have food during that time where you're giving the land some rest, where you're not growing whatever crops it is that you eat. But if you just look at this verse, it says for your male and female slaves. It doesn't say you shouldn't have slaves, but we know the character of God and God definitely doesn't condone owning other people. But that is a description of how culture worked at that time. People did have slaves. Now that also comes with this really heavy connotation for us in the Western world, especially for Americans, because our slavery, our connotation of slavery is really complicated. And the type of slavery that we had in America was absolutely horrific. Now, there were types of slavery and other times in other places where it was actually an economical thing to help you get rid of debt. And it wasn't this oppressive, I own you thing. And we can see that that's true because also slaves were meant to be freed in this year of Jubilee. So that's one example of how It's saying that there are slaves, but it's not saying that you should have slaves. It's describing what they have, not telling you what you should have. And 1 Timothy in the New Testament is also a good example of this. So in 1 Timothy, we have another verse that deals with slavery. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Now, 1 Timothy is another discourse. It's a letter written to Timothy while he's at the church of Ephesus. And verse one says, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, let's just pause here. Look at what's actually happening. This is describing those who are in slavery. It's not saying that there should be slavery or advocating for it. Like I mentioned before, our U.S. connotation of slavery is pretty awful because it's horrific. And so we can't see this word bond servant or slave without putting that cultural connotation into it. And so we tend to immediately dismiss these scriptures because it makes us uncomfortable because there's a word in it that we don't like and we don't want to talk about. But one of the reasons why we need to read this discourse and we need to know what the scriptures say is so that when the scriptures are used incorrectly, whenever God's character is being perverted and used to justify things like slavery, you can actually point it out with some certainty. Because unfortunately, slave owners in the United States absolutely used scriptures like this to keep their slaves obedient. They said, you want to believe in God, fine, but since you can't read, I'll read the Bible to you. And then they selectively read these verses. Let me kind of finish this point of this verse so you can understand what I'm talking about, because it starts with, regard your own masters as worthy of all honor. But it continues. So that this phrase is telling us why Christians should regard their masters as worthy of honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. 
So this is actually some historical context is really important because there were slave riots. There were people who were in a form of slavery to work off a debt. And so instead of going to prison, they might go work for a person for a certain amount of time. And there were riots against the people who were kind of in this economical, mutually beneficial kind of relationships. I'm not condoning it either. I'm not advocating it either. I'm just saying that this is what was happening at the time. And so the author of First Timothy, most likely Paul, is saying, if you're a Christian, you need to regard your master as having honor and you need to behave accordingly so that people know that you are a Christian. They want you to look different. Now, this is kind of that weird concept that we have in the evangelical church, I know for sure. It's kind of from Romans 12, where we're trying to figure out how to be in the world, but not of the world. That's from Romans 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God has always called his people to be different. That's what the law was about, was about making his people look different from their neighbors in the way that they worshiped, in the way that they held their societies, but also how they treated people that were in submission to them, like their servants. And this is another thing of that, because now we're on the other side of the cross. Jesus has come and he's fulfilled that law, but Christ's followers are still called to be different. And this time, it's not because of a set of rules, but it points to the way in which we act towards people with our hearts. And this all goes back to love. Jesus tells the disciples after washing their feet in John 35, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So in 1 Timothy, when Christian slaves are being told to regard their masters with honor, they're being told to be different. To be known as a Christian needs to mean something. That being a Christian means loving everyone, even those no one would ever expect you to. And it's only because God's love is so powerful that we can do that. It's not that slaves would inherently love their masters just because they love Jesus, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, they can show honor and respect to those who are in authority over them. So let's continue on this theme of love, and let's look at another discourse and probably a very familiar passage. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. Now, this may be familiar to you because maybe it was spoken at your wedding. It was spoken at mine. And if it wasn't at a wedding that you heard it or had it spoken at your own wedding, you've most likely seen it on some shiplap or some canvas, probably a thousand different times, right? It's a really good description of love, and it's a good reminder of what love is. But a bride from the Church of Corinth probably wouldn't have been so happy to have this spoken at her wedding. 
because this is a rebuke. This is a direct rebuke to the church in Corinth of how they have not been behaving. The letter to the church in Corinth opens chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is writing to them, and he has received some disturbing reports. And so he's going to say the point of this letter. In verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So if you remember from last week when we talked about discourse, these letters come in a structure, just like we have a Western format for letters. There was one here. So verses one through nine are telling the original recipients, the people in Corinth who wrote this letter, and then reaffirms the relationship that exists between the author and the recipient. Like, I'm Paul, and you should listen to me because of all these reasons. So that's verses one through nine. And then verse 10, we get to the point, kind of like a thesis statement. If you're starting the body of a paragraph, you write what that paragraph is going to be about, a theme statement. So Paul's going to lay out the accusation after this. He's gotten a report from Chloe's people that they're fighting in the church. And Paul's going to address that. And then he lays out specific fights and addresses the questions surrounding those issues. Then he's going to remind them of what really matters and points them back to the mature spiritual actions befitting of their standing as Christ followers. So what was my point? Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah. So the love chapter taken in context has a totally different tone from the original hearers of this letter. We view it as this ooey gooey romantic, love is patient, love is kind, and you look into your spouse's eyes with big doughy, you know, I can't wait for this moment. But if we look at the historical context of this letter, it definitely doesn't have that romantic tone. (laughs) So let's just look at a couple of things. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Like, Paul just called them all babies. (laughs) And he continues, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, You are still of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. Okay, Paul, like he is telling them you're immature, you're acting like babies, you are not being mature, you are still acting as if you live in the flesh. He goes on and on over the next few chapters addressing sexual immorality, marriage, singleness, anxiety, lawsuits, even food. Paul addresses a lot of these specific scenarios in which Christians can and should behave differently. So then we get to chapter 12, and it begins like this. Now concerning spiritual gifts. So that's what chapter 12 is about, spiritual gifts. Anytime you see these connecting words like now concerning or therefore or so that, what follows that is the point. So chapter 12 starts with now concerning spiritual gifts. And it ends in verse 31 with earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. And then we get to chapter 13, where Paul outlines what love is, that love is patient and love is kind. 
It's in a direct comparison to the behavior that he has already rebuked in the chapters that came previously. He's saying even if you struggle with idols and food and sexual immorality and so on and so on, you can always strive to act in love. We may not always know how to behave, and we may not always know the right course of action, but as Christ followers, we can trust this. We can act out of love because it was given to us first. The letter in Corinthians ends in chapter 16, and verses 13 through 14 kind of sum it up, and Paul does not mince words. (laughs) He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. He says, grow up. Stop acting like babies. Treat each other with love. Now, this is what, maybe a three, four minute summary of a super dense, rich book. (laughs) And this is why you need to study it on your own. Remember, I didn't go to seminary. I'm just a stay-at-home mom who loves to read her Bible. And I want to share these things that I've found with you. So when I tell you this is how you read discourse, then you can go and read the entire book of 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy or even Leviticus and read it in a way where you're looking for God's character, for the overarching point, for it to point to the gospel. And you can do these things, just like I was given resources and then I took the time to read the text. You can do that also. And most of all, pray. That sounds like such a trivial Christian thing to say, like, just pray about it, girl. But honestly, (laughs) start your study time with prayer. Pray throughout your study time. End it with prayer. Say, God, I don't understand this, or I really don't like what's in this book. It's a relationship. The point is to be in fellowship with God. So take all these things to him. Have a conversation about it. You can do these things. Now, I also was sitting on the other side of resources once upon a time and said, well, you found all those things in 1 Corinthians. Why can't you just tell me what they are? (laughs) Why can't you just give me a book And I will follow the points and I'll never be able to study like you. So the whole point, the whole heart of this podcast of footnotes and witness is to give you the footnotes, to give you the the just little piece of information that makes studying for yourself so much easier. Studying in community is absolutely worthwhile and something you should do, but I hope and pray that I have done somewhat of a good job to where you feel like you have a handle on discourse now, you have a handle on poetry, and you have a handle on narrative. And so when you open your Bible, you can look at it and see, does it fall into one of these categories? And if it's narrative, I'm going to look for the characters and the plot. If it's poetry, I'm going to underline those metaphors and and see if there's some common themes. If you go to discourse, you're going to look at the list, but see how those lists reflect God's character about what the actual point is. And so that's what we're going to start on next week (laughs) is those little things that I do to find some of this stuff. 
like underlining verbs. It sounds like such a silly thing to do, but inductive Bible study methods can be super, super helpful. So over the next two weeks, I hope that we're going to be able to go on this journey together. You're going to need lots of different colored highlighters, (laughs) pens, however you like to do things on notes, print stuff out. But we're going to take a look at the discourse that we've already kind of looked at and go through how you can study this in an inductive study Bible method to see all these things that I have kind of laid out for you today. And then we're going to talk about how to logistically write a testimony, knowing all these different literature types. Like my goal was to help you read the Bible, but it's also so that you can find your own story because our voices are powerful. And we need to share these stories. We need to be one with the body of the church. And so we have to tell each other things. So that can feel really scary. It can feel like falling off a cliff. (laughs) But falling is just the beginning. And hopefully, we're going to go over some tools where you can feel a little less scared about it. And it's going to be great. Don't worry about it. So no other literature is as easy to read as discourse. But my caveat to this little two-week lesson on discourse is that discourse can also be a loaded weapon. And this is how my dad described a car to me when I was first learning how to drive. And it has been such a really good tool to think about certain things like that. It is a loaded weapon. And if it is pointed at someone, it can really hurt them. The Bible should never be treated like that. It should never be used to judge, hurt, or put people down. For example, the slave owners who use this type of discourse to keep their slaves in line. We don't ever want to fall into that category. So whenever you come across discourse, don't use it as a checklist for yourself or for others. Look for the gospel because his love is what makes all of this possible. God's love and provision, his redemption and mercy can change human behavior. We don't have to go looking for a checklist of what that behavior needs to look like. His love can actually change hearts. There will be tough times and there will be bad calls made by others and made by us. But God never leaves us, and He never forsakes us. He is a God that is worth knowing and knowing His character and how He has always loved you and chosen you. And that is really good news. 